The Federal Air Marshal Service was created during the 1960s after a series of hijackings in the Middle East and problems in Cuba. On the morning of 9-11, there were 33 air marshals who worked within the Federal Aviation Administration. Following 9-11, thousands of air marshals would be hired under the Transportation Security Administration to make up one of the largest law enforcement agencies in America, working at 35,000 feet in the air. They were having some problems, uh, medical problems, up and down three, four times a day, just like the flight attendants and, and the pilots, and it's not really healthy for you. This is 9-11, two decades later. I'm Steve Gregory in Los Angeles. The Federal Air Marshal Service, or FAMS, got a big boost following 9-11. There was funding available, there was a scramble to hire qualified agents, and open up field offices around the country. Frank Donzani was brought on board right after 9-11 to run the field office in Los Angeles. He was the special agent in charge. So where were you on 9-11? So I was on the, uh, I was assistant special agent in charge on the former president for detail in Beaver Creek, Colorado. And uh, we, were, we always had a TV on for, for intel and news in the command post. And it came on early in the morning and that's, that's when we saw it. <laughs> so we immediately, it was, Pretty shocking for everybody. We watched it several times before we realized this was really happening. And it was an attack as opposed to an accident. Right. Yeah, yeah because initially that's what we thought it was. We immediately, you know, President Ford was uh, in his 80s, in his mid-80s by then. He was no longer really a threat to anybody. His, what he knew and all, but they have Secret Service protection till the day they die, the President or First Lady. And we thought, gee, this, this will be a possibility maybe for some terrorists to kidnap former presidents. That was on my mind, so of course we, we swung into action. We put a, uh, we, he lived in a cul-de-sac, so we blocked the cul-de-sac with vehicles. And uh, he lived in a private community, so of course we notified the security at the community and the local security in Eagle Vale. Said if he's anything suspicious, any individual suspicious, anybody looking for President Ford or any, asking any questions like that, we need to know right away. And of course we brought some long rifles out on post, so we kind of beefed up the weapons that we had. So where was the jump for you from doing the detail for President Ford to Air Marshal? Well, I had my 20 years on, and that's the minimum amount to retire. And I was thinking about retirement. As a Secret Service agent? Yeah, as a Secret Service agent. And uh, it just happened to be that Tom Quinn, who, was, uh, who I knew from the Secret Service, he was fairly high up in the organization, he was going to be the first director of the Federal Air Marshal Service. And he had... Uh, called some of us that he knew. Yeah, so he, he said, look, we're gonna, we're gonna open up offices all over the country. We're looking for people, of course, that are well equipped to handle security. I mean, that's what we've done, security. We do criminal investigations too, but half of half our job is protection. So it made sense. So he took, he took a lot of the senior agents, I was one of them, and uh, we were sent out to these different uh, air marshal uh, Post. I took L.A. because it was the closest one to uh, where Ford lived. He was in Colorado at the time, but his main home uh, was in Palm Springs. Right. So I said, just send me to the closest place. He says, well, it's actually not in L.A. It's at, it's at the El Toro Marine Corps Air Station. And I had to think for a second, and I remember leaving there in 1972. That was my last station after I come back from Vietnam. And I remember leaving there in uh, September of 72. And as I'm leaving the gate and leaving the Marine Corps after four years, I remember turning around looking at that gate and I said, I'll, I'll never see this again. <laughs> 25 years later, here I am going back in there as an air marshal. I would have never guessed that. 
how quickly after 9-11 did this ramped up air marshal service happen? They were, they were ramped up in a couple months. They, had, they hired a uh, civilian agency to hire air marshals. We had to do a lot of interviews to hire how many we, we needed to hire. It was thousands. The number's confidential how many we hired, but you had to interview thousands and thousands of people. So this agency came in and started doing those interviews. Meanwhile, headquarters was starting to ramp up starting to come up with their divisions and they were starting to plan uh, what's going to happen when these air marshals are go through the academy. It was, I think it might have been 10 weeks or something like that. It depends on your background. Some were longer, some were shorter. After a while, everybody went through the full academy. But in the beginning, we wanted to get people in those seats. It was paramount. So actually, even before El Toro, we were, it wasn't me, I wasn't there yet, but the, those 33 air marshals, two were sent to each field office to start things going initially. They're the only ones that had any experience with, with all that. So uh, they were working out of a hotel room, two hotel rooms. And the air marshals would come in, they'd pick up their schedule for two weeks, their flight schedule, and off they would go. When they were done their two-week schedule, they would come back, pick up another schedule for two weeks. So when you went through the training, had you talked to anyone on how, how different it was? I mean, what were the new things you had to look out for now. You had think tanks going all over the country and people sat down and they had a chance to see what happened. How was, how was the 9-11 hijackings pulled off? Mm. And so what they did was they came up with all these ideas. Number one is you want to prevent that from happening again. Of course, then you want to go beyond that. So the hardened cockpit door was one of them. Of course, it took months and months and maybe even years to get some of this stuff done for all the aircraft, especially the, the doors. Uh, meanwhile, what the flight attendants were doing until they could get that uh, completed. The flight attendants were moving their drink carts. When the, when the pilot had to come out to go to the bathroom on certain air, you know, air flights, they didn't have a, a cockpit bathroom. They would come out with the, the flight attendants. If they didn't have some of those planes, they had these metal screens that could come down. But the ones that didn't have that, they would push the cart in between the passengers and the cockpit and the lavatory. So at least someone would have to jump over it. And a flight attendant would stand, would stand there. And that's, that's what they had at the time. How many flights did you go on as an air marshal? I started as the air. I started the air marshal in charge. Oh. I took about twelve flights just to see what it was like. I took a European trip. I took an Asian trip, and I took some domestic trips, just to get a feel for what it was like to sit in that seat and and observe what they were supposed to observe, and see the reaction of the the, uh, the flight crew, the pilot, because some of these. You know, you go to foreign countries, you're met by customs in these foreign countries or by other law enforcement. We're trying to smoothen out the whole process. Meanwhile, we had foreign air marshals coming into our country and we would assist them in coming through our customs and things like that. Uh, hotel rooms and, and things like that. They're coming to a, a country and a city they'd never been to before. So we would smoothen things out for them and, and they'd assist us on the other end. So I guess I never really thought about that. Other yeah. countries having their own air marshals. Yeah, of course. And we, some countries couldn't afford it. And we told them that we would be their air marshals. It never came to fruition. But we've had, we had the Japanese, the Germans, the Canadians, the Mexicans, French, uh, all the major countries that have airlines. Uh, they would come into our country, you know, on, the, on, their, on their flagged airlines. And we only went on our flagged airlines, United American Delta, all of them. So... Uh, that's kind of how we went. And we sat in discussions with them. Everybody has their own idea, kind of weapons you're going to use, whether you use weapons, you don't use weapons, what kind of tactics, where your CD is going to be. We sat with a lot of these other agencies, different countries, and we pulled our thoughts together. And that's what we did. So it was a truly 
global effort. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and even I even worked at the airport for a while, and we also went out to other airports, not the air marshals, but the FSDs and TSA went out to other airports that didn't have the uh, the wherewithal that the United States has. And we help with their security at the airports because if they're going to be the ones screening our passengers who are coming into New York and all, we want to make sure they're doing it properly. December 29th, 2003, Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge talks about the first time the newly created color threat system changed colors and how the air marshals would help. Just over a week ago, the United States government raised the national threat level from an elevated to a high risk of terrorist attack. And as we know, more commonly known, referred to as from code yellow to code orange. Uh, First, let me say that Homeland Security officials at all levels of government, federal, state, and local, continue to work around the clock to protect our country. We know, we know from experience that the increased security we implement when we raise the threat level, along with the increased vigilance that occurs, can help disrupt or deter terrorist attacks, and that continues to be the case. I wish that all Americans could have the benefit of seeing firsthand what I have the opportunity to see, and that is the scope of the response undertaken by all segments of law enforcement, public safety, and government at all levels, as they have quickly and effectively ramped up comprehensive protective measures around the entire country. It is because of their good efforts that we are, without doubt, better prepared to deter or to respond to a terrorist threat than ever before. Now, with all the recent talk about air travel, it is understandable that some still question the safety of flying. Let me reassure you that in the two and a half years since September 11th, Our aviation system has risen to new heights of security and will continue to take additional steps to increase protection. Today I am announcing the Department of Homeland Security has issued aviation emergency amendments to further enhance security relating to both passenger and cargo aircraft flying to, flying from, and over the United States. Specifically, We have requested that international air carriers, where necessary, place trained, armed government law enforcement officers on designated flights as an added protective measure. These directives, effective immediately, are part of our ongoing effort to make air travel safe for Americans and visitors alike. All Americans should know. Now that we are at a code orange state of alert, additional meaningful security measures have been put in place all across the country. I've been talking with retired Federal Air Marshal Frank Donzanti, who was the special agent in charge for the Los Angeles field office. Wasn't there an issue about the fact that you looked like air marshals and that you looked like cops or agents and that you had to start really working on blending in more? That's true. And it was for a lot of reasons. One is we hired people young, young people mostly, physically fit. So they kind of stood out as a typical businessman. We tried to, we wore suits, some flights like, you got flights from Washington DC to New York, or some flights from LA to San Francisco. 
businessmen would dress up in suits. Sometimes they would take their tie off, but they'd have a suit on. They'd fly up, go to a meeting, and fly back. They're in suits. So we tried to put air marshals in suits on those flights. We had flights in L.A. a lot. A lot of my flights went to Hawaii. We had Hawaiian shirts on. So we tried to blend in, but you had fairly young guys and girls, physically fit, looking around instead of reading books and all. And we tell them, okay, you can read a book, but don't get too involved in a book. You can read a mo- you can watch a movie. Don't get too involved in a movie. And because your job is to be circumspect and see what's going on. So what people would do is they would look at people that were, that were looking at them. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we learned over time how to blend in and, and it took, and it took a while. Has the program itself, has it stayed this robust? Is it a federal air marshal program? Right. But it's part of the TSA, right? Right. We're under, you know, we, we left TSA for a while and went, went to customs. But because we wanted to be an air marshal, be in protection all the time for 20 years, that's tough to do, to be in an airplane up and down. So we're right. trying to think of a way to get him involved in something else, like the Secret Service. We did 50% protection, 50% investigations. So we thought if we, if we got involved in customs, they could do maybe six months or a year or two years of flying, then a couple of years doing investigations. Well... We never were quite accepted by customs. They didn't want people coming in for two years and leaving for two years. So it never quite panned out that way. So, you know, we did some other things. We got them involved in airport security. So we had liaison people, which I actually did for 10 years at Long Beach and John Wayne Airport. Uh, We were involved with the local police, state police and airport police, and we helped them do assessments, security assessments. When the air marshals would come through, we would handle them. And, and issues like that. VIPs would come through, we'd help them through security. So we did a lot of, lot of things like that. The other thing, we had people in all 50 uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force by the FBI. So we had people embedded, air marshals embedded, doing FBI investigations that were related to airline safety and airport safety. So we had 50 people doing that, and we also had a person in headquarters, JTTF, in Washington, D.C. So we rotated through these positions, and I would get them off off the airplanes. Of course, they could always go to the academy, teach the academy. There was administrative jobs in headquarters. Uh, we had administrative jobs at the LAX office, scheduling and things like that. We had our own training program, so they could do that. So that went on. We did a sleep study because we found out that they were having some problems, uh, medical problems, up and down three, four times a day, just like the flight attendants and, and the pilots, but their job was a little different. Unlike flight attendants, they had to sit down most of the time, more like a pilot. And it's not really healthy for you. So, and then they couldn't sleep. You had the six hours, sometimes three hours change in time. So they did a six month sleep study and they came up with a way to do, change scheduling a little bit and do some things. So, yeah. I mean, it has changed. It's, it's gotten a little better to, in that respect, but the training's just as robust. If anything, it's, it's probably better. We've, we've learned things. They have a fairly long sure. academy and we have we have good quarterly training that we still do. Every office has a, an airplane mock-up where you can induce smoke into it. You can, you can rock and roll it. You, you, can get, you have a PA system, and we have airline seats in air, and we run scenarios. And they come in here quarterly, and they run scenarios with, with blank guns, and we run different scenarios over and over and over again. So the program itself is still very much alive and well. Yes. From the time you started to the time you retired, during your tenure there, how many risks were averted or how many attacks might have been averted? It's hard to say. I would say just, just by a mere presence, you probably avert a lot of attacks. You know, the terrorists are always going to hit the weakest link. And 
Aviation at the time was the weakest link. And no one, no one had the imagination to think that could be done like that. So once, you know, I mean, everything that we've been doing, the air marshals and, and the doors you had mentioned, and of course the screening was a big part of it, all the screening that we're doing now at the airports. When the terrorists knew that we were putting money and effort into that, they were kind of sidetracked into something else. I mean, we always thought it could happen again, but as the years went by, they thought they're softer targets. And so we had the shoe bomber, if you remember. We had the underwear bomber. Mm-hmm. And then we had, um, we had some bombs that were going to be placed in the, in the luggage compartment. So as we hardened everything up, they just found other places, other venues to go. And so as far as the air marshals actually stopping something on board, it's, it's almost nil. But it's like anything else when security, you never know what you stopped in the Secret Service. We never knew how many uh, assassination attempts we stopped. We, we know of like one maybe, and it was Hinckley. Hinckley, when he was interviewed by the Secret Service after he shot Reagan, they, you know, they talked to him for quite a while, and, and they said, did you, was he the first president you were going to assassinate? He says, no, I, I tried to assassinate Jimmy Carter. And they go, why? And he goes, when? And we went and we reviewed film that the media took at the, at the sites that he was, outdoor sites, and there he was. He was about five rows back at a speech Jimmy Carter gave, and he had that same faraway look in his face. And he said, I never got close enough that I felt like I could take a shot at uh, Jimmy Carter. And so <laughs> you just don't know. Wow. When, you, when you think about that, you really don't know what you stopped. We just we found that out uh, after he was successful uh, the second time. But he, he had tried. It wasn't that only that one time, but it was other times he said he had tried. He just could never get close enough. What were some of the biggest challenges about making this an effective program? First of all, the infrastructure. I told you we started out in the hotel rooms, then we moved to uh, El Toro, and we moved into the tower at El Toro, the aircraft tower there, and there were some, there were some rooms there, and uh, there was no furniture there and any office equipment. We borrowed a lot of that from, that was in storage, because El Toro was under that BRAC program, base realignment program that was back then. So they had all this equipment there. So we, we needed all this equipment. We brought a lot of that in, there was a problem with drinking water at El Toro. You couldn't drink the water. If you remember that we had super, super funds back then, a lot of the military bases right. were, drum- were dumping toxic chemicals that leaked through, leached into the groundwater. So we had to bring in water, bottled water. We had to bring in porta potties. So it was, it was all of that. And then, and then getting people out to the right flights, determining what flights they should be on. That, was, that part was done in headquarters. Trying to look at the, trying to assess the, the intel we had and where the threat was. There's 25,000 flight legs a day in the United States. 25,000 we had to cover. So you can imagine you, you can't cover them all. So somebody had to decide which ones we were going to cover. And, and scheduling was, was a monstrosity, trying to schedule that many people. Then you had flight delays for mechanical flight delays, weather flight delays. You had fans that were sick. How do you, how do you, how do you operate all this? There's all these moving parts. And then the intel was, was nonstop especially in the beginning. I was getting calls two and three o'clock in the morning about incidents that occurred overseas. They were just waking us up and getting us the intel. And I, re- I remember one time I got some information on, remember when Somali pirates were out there taking over ships? They've made a movie about it. So I get a call. It wasn't two o'clock in the morning, but I get a, I get a rather, rather long email on Somali pirates hijacking ships. And I says, well, what does that have to do with LAX airport? And they go, this is our intel people. We were told to give you everything. No. Because remember, connecting the dots, and they were afraid that they weren't going to tell us something we needed to know. 
So, okay, I guess there's a, there's a leap from, from hijacking ships to hijacking airplanes, so we got everything. And it was just, <laughs> we were inundated with intelligence in the beginning. It slowed down a little bit. I think because the intel slowed down in, you know, over the years. But it was incredible just dealing with the intelligence. Did you like the work? Oh, of course I did, because yeah. I, you were busy. That first year, year and a half, we were working 12-hour days. We, like I said, we were getting phone calls. We were getting woken up. You really felt like you were doing something useful. And we always thought another attack was imminent in the beginning. So, yeah, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the, the, the air marshals were very dedicated. They, they had signed up for this because they figured they were going to, they were going to have to deal with somebody at 50,000 feet. So these were motivated people. And it was great working with motivated people because then when they went, in, went into training, they were paying attention. They always did their best in training. It was, it was nice being around them. I heard that pilots can opt to carry a weapon. Yes. Can, do you know about that? Yeah. And I, I'm not sure exactly when that came into being, but that was, that was one of the things that the, that blue panel came out with is, is the arm the pilots because, remember, they broke down the, the door into the cockpit. So... Either something would happen to the air marshals where they become neutralized, or most likely they would be, the hijackers would be on a flight, there were no air marshals, uh, although I think the passengers would have intervened. But let's say all that went, went to the side. Uh, if they broke down the door of the cockpit, they still had the, um, the pilots armed. So we trained them, we gave them a couple weeks training, and uh, there was limitations on what they could do, what they should do, and all they had. They had standard operating procedures. I'm not going to go into those, but, you know, they, they were given their SOPs. They had training by us, and they, and they didn't have recurrent training. And we thought that worked great because these were a lot of former military people. <laughs> They're very adept at what they do. These are, these are thinkers, of course. And so, you know, you give them a mission, and, and they could handle the mission. So that, that worked out good for us. And we worked with them along the way, and, and uh, I thought it was a good program. It's still going on. Was this voluntary or were they? Totally voluntary, but they didn't, they didn't get paid. They actually went on their own time to our training. But the airlines, they wanted them to do it, but they weren't willing to pay them to do it. So we gave them the weapons. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were our weapons. Oh. So it belonged to the federal government. We gave them credentials. Are they peace officers? They kind of are peace officers in when they're in that cockpit. They have that status, but not outside the cockpit, not outside that plane. Their authority leaves when they leave that plane. So in theory... There's this federal police program that's in the sky. Right. That's separate of the Marshall program. Yes. So you probably have the largest civilian police department. It's very large. And I'm sure that's classified too. It's, it's large. But I mean, if you do Larger like than what you math. would think. And, yeah. And they have their credentials and all because they carry that weapon. It is concealed <laughs> and it's, it's done the right way. And it's there. And uh, yeah, they don't have any authority off that plane. Like the federal air marshals, of course, they're federal officers. They have authority all the time, 24 by 7. And they, carry their, they can carry their weapons off duty. The, the pilots can't. What is the threshold of intervening for, for an air marshal? Is it only when there's an imminent threat to the plane, as in a hijack, or is it an unruly passenger? You know, we try not to get involved in the small stuff. If, they, if, if it has to do with flight safety, if they're assaulting off, you know, uh, flight attendants and things like that, where it actually comes to the point, because now I'll tell you, a lot of times passengers are going to intervene before the air marshals do anything because we're not going to jump in any situation half-cocked. We're always going to look at things and see what's going on. We don't want to be rused into something. Right. So we're not, we're not jumping out of that seat, doing anything in a hurry. 
we're looking around, we're communicating with each other. We may even communicate with the flight attendants and the, and the, and the captain and say, here's what's going on. What do you have? We want to know everything that's happening, not just one small incident. So we'll hesitate to get involved in small stuff. But anything that has to do with the airworthiness of that airplane, that's where we're going to get involved in it. But like I said, after some thoughtful thoughtfulness before we, we get involved in anything like that. Do you want to share any uh, close calls, whether it was you or someone on your team? We've, we've always had unruly pastors, things like that. But to, to be honest with you, uh, we've had people, we've had, well, we did have an incident in Miami, uh, the Miami office. It was fairly early on. There was a passenger traveling from South America to Miami. Then they were going to move on. I think they stayed on that flight and they were moving on to another, another city stop. And apparently one of the passengers uh, had a backpack on and he was um, mentally ill, you might say. He had mental condition and he was off his meds and he started pacing around the aircraft uh, and he started to unravel. The plane was still on the ground, passenger was still coming on board, embarking, debarking. And the, the uh, air marshal saw this was going on. He stood up. They told him to sit down. He started walking around, like I said, and then finally he started walking. He started leaving the plane. <laughs> if, I, if I remember well, he had his backpack on the front and he kept going inside his backpack, almost like it looked like he may have been a suicide bomber and he was acting insane, you might want to say, just acting very unusual and he wouldn't obey any orders. So the air marshals, this I think went on for a couple of minutes. Finally, they said, take your hands out of your backpack. Take your hands out of your backpack because there's an airplane. They're refueling that airplane. So you can imagine what that would have been like if he had an explosive there. And he refused to do that. And he started walking back to the aircraft and the air marshals interposed himself between him and the aircraft. And they said, you're not coming back on. And he started coming on and they shot him and they killed him. So that, that was an incident. And of course, he didn't have anything in that backpack. He was mentally ill and he was off his medication. The air marshals were cleared. It was a big investigation by, I think it was uh, uh, Dade County, Metro Dade County, uh, and uh, they were cleared. But yeah, he, he just wouldn't, he wouldn't stop. And he was, he was getting ready to get back on that airplane, and they just couldn't do it. Hmm. Unfortunate incident. So that was the biggest incident we had. Coming off of your tenure as a Secret Service agent, then your tenure as a federal air marshal, at least as a SAC, are we safer today than we were 20 years ago? In the air? I can, I can speak to that, sure. And a lot of the stuff we covered already with TSA, I mean, we have a whole organization that's what they're dedicated to, air safety. But not only air safety, it gets to the, the airports themselves, the screening, all the assessments that are done at the airports. We work together very closely. Over here, I work together with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, had a great relationship with them, and Long Beach Police Department at Long Beach. Now, at LAX, it's LAWA is the main uh, law enforcement agency there. And we have a great relationship with them. And then, of course, with the FBI and the ATF comes through there quite a bit in customs. We have relationships with them. So we built relationships over the year. We're in the JTTF, like I told you. We get all the intel that they get. We're pulling together. So, yeah, we have the air marshal program. We have all the other programs up and running. Uh, we have the connectivity, the intel, and all the upgrades they did to the aircraft themselves. Yeah, we're safer. Can I predict what's going to happen? No, I can't predict. I can just say we're doing a better job and we're safer than we were then. Absolutely. What about as a country? 
Well, I'll go back. And this, this isn't new with, with some of these um, bad actors in our own country, U.S. citizens. This goes way back. I mean, it goes back to the Vietnam War and all that, if you want to do that. You remember all those groups that were back then that it slowed down for a little bit. But then even in the 90s, you know, Timothy McVeigh and you had the uh, different religious groups. I, we call them quasi-religious groups. Right. You had all kinds of issues like that. So we always, we always looked at the internal threat. It was long before... Uh, things start unraveling now. These people have always been around, you know, at different locations. So we always thought that was because they're Americans. They have jobs. They they know our culture. They're they're here, and I think that's starting to come back again. You know, they so they say we decimated Al Qaeda to some extent. Some of these groups, the, all these different factions, the Red Brigade and all that. It was an you know, international operation when all that that started to to wane. And then some of these local groups now are starting to come back again. And so, to me, that's a little frightening. I know the FBI is concerned about it, and it's, there's a lot of talk about it. That, that kind of bothers me. Homegrown terrorist. That's, we've been looking at that, though, you know, for quite some time. It, you know, like I said, it goes way back, but it's been stepped up quite a bit. Even, even the, uh, I remember when I was in Vail, Colorado with, with President Ford, they had a group that, that didn't want development of natural land, so they, they, they burned down a ski resort up up outside of Vail, Colorado, and things like that. So yeah, the anarchist and all that. So it's it's always been there. Right. I remember when 9/11 happened. Everybody said uh, we we never anticipated anything like that. Well, it's not quite true because in 1974, uh, Robert Preston was in he's an army. Uh, he went to helicopter pilot school. 74, and in February of 74. He, he didn't make the program, so he didn't get his wings. They made him a, 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 a helicopter technician. So he decided he's going to steal a helicopter. He stole a helicopter. He flew it around. They couldn't catch him. They were flying other helicopters to catch him, and he wanted to show them how, how good he could fly the helicopter. And he flew around for quite a while, and they couldn't, they couldn't make him ground the helicopter. So he decided to ground it on the south grounds of the White House. And as he was doing that, the Secret Service shot him. And they arrested him after he landed his plane on the south ground. So we always, we always knew there was a, an aviation threat to the White House. And then in uh, 94, and this is really strange, 9-11-94, September 11th, 94, Frank Quarter, who was mentally ill, flew a Cessna 150 into the White House. He, the only reason he didn't hit the White House is because he hit a big oak tree that had been there for 100 years. He hit an oak tree and the plane crashed and, and blew up and he was killed. I think he was 20 or 30 feet from the White House. He was mentally ill. So going back to then and then in 94, when I was in the Secret Service, I was in a meeting uh, with a lot of the higher ups in the Secret Service and it came to light again. We worried about airplanes crashing into the White House. And so we, we had a, a representative from a, a local contractor come in, a defense contractor, and he talked about what kind of weapons we could put at the White House, any aircraft weapons, this kind of thing. And uh, we had a big heated discussion over that, putting in any aircraft weapon and that kind of, those kind of weapons, you know, at the White House in, in Washington, D.C., with, with the uh, flight line only a couple miles away with the uh, airplanes coming and going out of uh, Washington, D.C., Airport Reagan National. And, you know, those, those rockets go several miles. So we had, 
I'm not going to tell you what happened at the end of that. I was what we say, wound up what doing. What did you guys end up doing? No, I'm not going to tell you what we wound up doing at the time. And I'm and I and I and I'll be honest with you. I don't know what they did now. That was that was 30 years ago. Coming up in episode six. The government failed to protect the American people. The United States government was simply not active enough in combating the terrorist threat before 9/11. The final analysis. 9-11, Two Decades Later, is produced by Steve Gregory and Jacob Gonzalez and is a production of the KFI News Department for iHeartMedia Los Angeles and the iHeart Podcast Network. The views expressed are strictly those of the guests and not necessarily the hosts or employees of iHeartMedia. Media.